0: This presentation is from Service Design 2016, held in Melbourne in March. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Our first talk for the day um, is a guy by the name of Andy Pallain. He is an author, an academic, for which we forgive him. And he is uh, one of the, the leading service design practitioners now in Australia, but also around the world. Um, please join me in welcoming to the stage Andy Pallain. Thanks. I'm not an academic anymore. Well, unfortunately. Fortunately. It depends. So as you'll see, I I work for Fjord now. I'm one of the design directors there. And um, So thank you very much, uh, Steve and Donna, and for the invite. Thank you all. I'm just about old enough to remember when um, I used to go shopping with my grandparents, actually. And there was a sort of uh, very old-fashioned department store and a grocery store, too, where you would go and you'd have a personal shop assistant who would come, and they would look not dissimilar to these people in the background. In fact, it's not this store, but just out of the picture here, it says Home and Colonial Stores. It's a brilliant photo. And, um, and those people would go around with you, is there anything else there? And you go, yes, OK, I'd have some of those. And they, and they would just sort of write it all down. And then you'd go to a separate cashier who was kind of in a little glass box because the staff didn't touch money. And then by the time you'd paid, it'd all be sort of packaged up for you and you'd go. And it's really sort of struck, uh, stuck with me that kind of way of thinking when we've been talking about uh, this thing which is living services. So living services are the result of of two powerful forces going on. One of them is the the digitization of everything. Um, So as devices become more and more embedded everywhere and connected everywhere, there's a whole set of data and there's a whole set of services that are running in the background that start kind of wrapping around us. And at the same time, we have these liquid expectations. Consumers and customers have these liquid expectations, which is this idea that they break uh, out of industry boundaries. So no longer do you compare your bank with another bank, but you're comparing your bank with Amazon, or you're comparing your uh, telco with Apple, and so forth. And so those kinds of uh, expectations of how stuff should work, so all the stuff that uh, it's our job to make work really nicely, um, is uh, gets set somewhere else, and it spreads across our expectations of everything. And you know, it's one of the reasons why this this new sort of push, of, relatively new push towards uh, enterprise UX and service design, because those systems, for any of you who work in large companies, are pretty awful. Uh, and yet, our expectations are now: well, why doesn't this stuff work? Uh, like all the lovely things that I use in my everyday. So we call them living because they constantly learn more about your needs and preferences and your habits and so forth and they're changing in real time so one of the kind of big leaps for that is that you know a lot of these the kind of apps and services are going to make the current apps and services seem really static because they change and they learn so much that you end up in a demographic of one so they're all about they're all about you um, they're very proximate to us if you think of wearables and nearables, stuff that's around us all the time. So they're very intimate too. And um, they're starting to become embedded and in- ingrained in the things that are really important to us, like our health and our families and our homes. So much more sort of intimate than the experience of going out somewhere to, to experience something, um, going out to a restaurant, going out to. Uh, A hotel, going out to a shop. These are things that live with us as much as anything else. So a lot of those things are about changing um, or making the taking the automation of of everyday kind of boring things, um, taking over those, the sort of maintenance of those things. So you know the obvious things like Nest and stuff like that at the moment are that kind of shift going on. So a lot of things just adjusting and and. in the background and learning from what we do, right? but long term learning. So, again, Nest is quite a good example of this, something that kind of learns as, as you start using it more and more often. The fuel for all of this is really data and analytics. So, um, for all the design people in the room, you may remember the sort of Bauhausian way of thinking about design where you, know, you have things like form and and balance and color as the kind of fundamentals of design. And, and data is another, it's not really a medium, but it's another um, aspect or facet to uh, to your palette as a designer of things you can design with and think about. Um, so data in design is a really important thing. It's not just what sort of data viz. It's also thinking about if we had... If we had all the data available to us that we could wish for, what would, we, what would we do with it? How would we create these kind of wonderful services? And then going back to our clients and, um, and looking at, you know, what do they already have? So a lot, of, a lot of our clients have lots of data, and they don't really know what to do with it. And some of them have too much data, and they don't know what to do with that. And some of them don't have any and so you know, part of our job is to think about what, what can we do with this? And, and there's really sort of important stuff about trust uh, that I'm gonna touch on in a minute. And of course, what's happening with this is you've got, um, it's all being collected by all these devices that I was just talking about. So we're having lots and lots of tiny interactions and those little micro-interactions, for those of you who've read Dan Saffer's book, become very, very important and how they all join together. And so it, it's more about thinking of an environment rather than, than an industry. So I saw the, the recent video of the guy with the jetpack uh, flying around, I think, in New York, wasn't it? Um, and I was still waiting for my flying car. And there's, a, there's a, a website actually called Paleo Futures. I think it's called Paleo Futures. And he finds loads of old stuff about predictions of the future. And it's really, really fascinating to see how often we get that wrong. Um, so some of these will get wrong, too. So I was wondering, you know, is the future already here? And when I look at some of the kind of apps that are, are around, you know, there's these, these things like you know, TaskRabbit and Air Tasker and um, Wash. I don't know if it's Washio or WashIO. It's, it handles your, they handle your laundry. Um, and you've got all these services like Trunk Club and CookApp. CookApp allows people to sort of cook... Um, Meat and Cook. I think it Meat and Eat, of course. It's Meat and Eat. Um, and what's, uh, it was, it's sort of a social sort of cooking um, service. But what it started to be used is this sort of... Um, if you like, by um, Michelin star chefs who are able to cook for a very sort of, uh, small group of people. So you can have a, a, a very good cook come and cook for a sort of small dinner party. Plus you've got these other living services. Google Now probably the most obvious one. are These things saying, oh, you're, uh, you need to leave now because you're going to be late for your meeting. And you're like, how, did you, how do you even know? That's, that's I'm kind of not, not sure I like that. Amazon Echo, there was a thing the other day. I think NPR had a news report about Amazon Echo, and someone's Echo in their house picked up the audio and, and cranked up his uh, thermostat. Um, so the bugs on this stuff are by no means ironed out, and that's going to be our job is to sort that stuff out. Plus you've got you know the obvious ones like Uber or um, Apple's store app is a bit like that shop assistant I was talking about at the beginning. You go into the store, you take something off the shelf, you scan it yourself, and you just walk out. So the store changes from being an Apple store where I go into and I have an interaction with uh, with someone, I go and pay for it at a counter, to Apple just being my my store. It's just my my store room. Right? I just go in, take something off the shelf, and go. And it's a subtle thing, but it's really, really fundamental in the way we think about um, those kinds of services. But what it made me think of all the time, sorry, just. What it made me think of all the time was um, that we're kind of remembering stuff that we've forgotten. Um, because these people were the original living services. Now, just so I know, who's, who's seen Downton Abbey in here? Who's watched the TV series Downton Abbey? Okay. For about half of you. So um, the other title for this talk was going to be this. <laughs> um, and I just... I can, I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to put that as the title. I couldn't bring myself not to use the joke. So anyway. <coughs> the, the reason why I was talking about so for those of you who don't know, Downton Abbey was set um, sort of late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, a country house in the in the uh, in England, and it's kind of upstairs downstairs. Um, so it's it's about this kind of aristocratic family, but it's also all about the servants. Um, and it's really, it's like EastEnders, or Neighbors, but just in, set in, um, in Downton Abbey. It's really just a soap opera. But it's, it's, they did a lot of um, work crafting that, that world of what it used to be like. And it's interesting if you go back and read the classics. So there's, there's two sort of famous books. One of them is um, the Encyclopedia of uh, Household Management, I think. Uh, Domestic Economy, that's right, by this guy Thomas Webster. Um, that's the one on the left and Mrs. Beaton's uh, book on household management that's the really famous one on the right and you know, Mrs. Beaton's book has got everything about how servants should behave and so forth through to you know, recipes with lots of butter in them uh, and they're all online they're all you know, out, of <clears throat> out of copyright so you can read them and they're quite interesting because uh, you just read this stuff and think oh hang on a minute that's exactly what we're talking about with the kinds of stuff we're we're doing now. One of the the trends that's going on is this idea, which is the flattening flattening of privilege. So all of those logos that I showed you before, all those services, someone who's doing your washing and so forth, they're all really a um, a result of technology uh, making things that were previously out of other people's reach um, available to everyone. So if we think of this in in Downton Abbey terms, you know, here we have Uber. Okay, so we all have our our beck and call a private chauffeur. <clears throat> um, perhaps not quite so nice looking as what's his name? It's Thomas, isn't it? Is it Tom? I can't remember the, his name. Tom is Tom, isn't it? Yeah. Um, or we have things like Cook app and HelloFresh, so the, the you know groceries are being delivered to us, and then we can have some uh, professional chef kind of uh, make these things for us. Um, so Mrs. Pat Moore and Daisy here, um, and then got things like Trunk Club, right? So you've got uh, a valet. That's Mosley on the right-hand side there, and. Uh, this is a scene, this is a really interesting scene, actually, because Mosley, so Matthew on the left, he's, he's a kind of new generation. He, he's like the sort of millennial of, of this uh, of this world. And he's saying to Mosley, so Mosley's saying, oh, I think uh, you'd like these cufflinks, sir. And um, he's going, it's okay, I'll put them on myself. And Mosley's like, oh, uh-huh, okay. And he's really downhearted because he believes his job is going to go. Uh, and that his... His whole identity is based around, and his whole professional identity is based around how well he can do that job in service. And it used to be called being in service. right? And uh, and so Matthew's kind of saying, well, I don't really need you anymore. And there's a kind of flip side to that stuff that I think we need to watch. And I'm going to talk about that right at the end. But it's, a, it's very interesting to watch the dynamic because what's going on in Downson Abbey is that change because it starts from... Sort of 1840, I think, and ends in 1950 or something like that. 19 uh, post post Second World War or so pre just pre pre Second World War. Um, so they have the sort of First World War in the middle, and there was this massive change in society that happened then, and we're seeing it again with this flattening of privilege. So here's Wash I O Washia. Does anyone know how you say that? Is it Wash.io or Wash I O? I, I think it's a result of a d- domain name thing. And, of course, you've got TaskRabbit. And so lots of people who go off and do your stuff. Um, and it's interesting, if anyone's read, uh, there's another book that's very worth reading. It's Bill Bryson's book, At Home. And he talks a lot about the history of, habit, you know, of living. And um, he gives an example in there of this. He was an earl of someone whose valet was away. And he didn't know how to put toothpaste on his toothbrush because he just assumed that the, the toothpaste kind of just came out of the brush every morning because his valet would kind of put it on there and stuff. And, um, you know, one of the things that people used to do, if, if you're very wealthy, you'd have a, a large library and books were expensive. And, of course, so was, so was music. So people used to really sit in the evenings in their drawing rooms and they would play music and they would, they would um, you know, sing and those sorts of things. So... My last one is really Spotify (laughs) here. It's not really one, I just like the picture. Um, So, what I thought I'd do is think about well, what would Mrs. Beaton have to say about this? So, this is Mrs. Beaton on smart homes. So, a valet's day commences by seeing that his master's dressing room is in order, that the household swept and dusted, uh, a housemaid has swept and dusted it properly that the fire is lighted and burns cheerfully, and at some time before his master is expected, he will do well to throw up the sash to admit fresh air, closing it, however, in time to recover the temperature which he knows his master prefers." Sounds kind of like Nest, right? It's a smart home. That's all the kind of stuff that we're talking about. But along with this kind of intimate behavior comes this thing that's really important, which is services with manners. And some of it's about big data etiquette and some of it I think is about this idea of the kind of intimate proximity we have when we're delivering those cons- and designing those services. So there's a, a footman called Barrow in uh, Downton Abbey and he's pretty sinister, right? He's, he's always scheming and uh, he's always kind of gathering um, data on his employers um, to, to use to blackmail people and on his peers, actually. Uh, and so he's, he's kind of uh, the sort of dark side of it. I feel a bit sorry for the actor, actually, because you know, it's one of those characters that kind of everyone loves to hate, and I wonder what it's like for him in real life. So how do you uh, avoid those kind of service faux pas? So one of them is acting it out. So if you're, if you're designing services where there's that kind of intimate uh, exchange... I mean, really act it out. So imagine if, if someone in Microsoft had acted out the Clippy the paperclip thing. All right. And they'd uh, Look, so I'm going to act it out. You pretend you're working here, and then as they start, you go, Hello, it looks like you're trying to write a, a letter. And you go, Yeah, no, 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 go away. Hello, it looks like you're sure you, you, know. You would immediately feel, No, that's just wrong. Okay, don't, don't, <laughs> let's get rid of that. So some of those things that are really about kind of, um, Understanding when to intervene and when to step back in a very kind of butlery or footman-type way, um, you actually really have to act out because there's a kind of humans are very um, hardwired to understand everything in in terms of other humans. So those kinds of relationships uh, with services are really kind of interpreted in that way. So acting out, actually acting out, is a really good way to understand the kind of empathy and what's going on in people's heads. Um, be real, be explicit, but also be nice. So there are things where you exchange data, and there's things like Amazon Underground where basically you trade your data in in order to get free games. And we do it all the time, right? We give up privacy for some kind of other benefit. So it's really important to be very, very clear about that process and upfront. And this idea of kind of finding etiquette allies. So... There's always, no service is really an island, right? There's always, there's always partners with someone else, whether it's the cloud storage or it's kind of some other part in the chain. And what we're seeing all the time with things like Target and all those kind of things is whoever's the weakest point in the weakest link in the chain ruins it for everyone. So it's really, really important those kinds of partnerships are very well thought out. And we talk a lot about sort of seamless experiences and I talk a lot about how important transitions are and getting those right. But sometimes you, you sort of don't want to make those invisible. Sometimes you actually want to have that, make that handover very, very clear to say we're, we're going to hand this stuff over to there um, and we're going to be very clear about what that transition means so you know you, what you're getting um, put into. And someone was saying yesterday about their, their uh, data, credit card data suddenly being kind of given to loads of people that they didn't remember signing up to. Um, Sounds obvious, right? Chief security officer. That stuff really needs to be beefed up. So again, if there isn't that investment in handling data responsibly, um, you're going to have a problem sometime, and it it will make or break a service. And there's a kind of headlong rush often into into delivering these things, and this bit's often forgotten. So this is Thomas Webster. You might remember he was the encyclopedia guy of... um, household economy talking about data privacy so to the ladies made and valet prudence of speech should belong and he talks about uh, tattle tittle tattle in uh, so being more immediately about the person of those whom they serve than others of the establishment they have opportunities of hearing opinions of persons and circumstances hastily and unguardedly expressed amazon echo which, if repeated, might be mischievous, especially if told inaccurately or with exaggerations. So this is from 1845. <clears throat> and really, you know, the, if you're going to have devices that are constantly li- listening to you all the time, uh, we really have to think about how that stuff's going to work. So these things that are living with us and then connected to the rest of the world are, um, need to be really carefully designed and thought about. So there's another sort of side to this, which is, of course, you know, are these just kind of entitled toffs, right? Are they just kind of just think you watch it and you just think, oh well, come on, you know, you guys, they can barely kind of walk. They probably can't even pour a glass of wine themselves. You know, just <coughs> just, everything's handed to onto them uh, to them on the platter. You know how different the world is now. <clears throat> but some of you might know of this uh, letter from. Uh, that uh, this guy, Justin Keller, he's a tech entrepreneur. He has a thing called Commando.io, Commando.io, wrote to the San Francisco mayor and the uh, chief of police. I don't know if anyone's seen this. And he's basically um, complaining about uh, the sort of homeless riffraff in, in San Francisco. And so there's this kind of gulf in Silicon Valley between... Uh, you know this concentration of wealth and amazing innovation, and yet, at the same time, you go to San Francisco and there 's homeless people, people who clearly need medical care just all over the place. But if you kind of read what he, he writes, there 's a bit down here where he goes, um, uh, the incident uh, he was like, this last, this ho- last holiday weekend, my, my parents were here, and the incident involved a drunken man in the morning coming up to their car and leaning on it. And for me, it just sounds like one of these guys going, how dare you touch my car? You know? And, and it's, it's, there's, something, there's something kind of wrong there. So there is a dark side of privilege, right? which is unlike sort of equal rights, which is a sort of you give to anyone and it doesn't diminish the ones that you already have. Privilege automatically means someone else isn't as privileged. Right? So this picture here is an, um, an Uber car um, smashed up by uh, taxi drivers in Paris. And there was a great piece by Umair, I don't know how you pronounce his name, actually, Umair Haik, uh, I think just last week, talking about how we're driving towards efficiency and we're, we're focused, so focused on that, but we're kind of rubbish at everything else. And one of the things he says is that efficiency and productivity are used interchangeably, but those are two different things. You know, Efficiency is just being able to make things for less money and less uh, effort, productivity is making things better. And he gives this example, and he's talking about you know, why isn't Silicon Valley really ta- tackling this stuff? And I think part of our job as service design, particularly if we're working with public services, is to try and tackle some of this stuff. And he says, it's damn hard to come up with life-changing breakthroughs when you're trapped 25 hours a day on minimum wage, being an on-demand Insta-butler or dog-walker or chauffeur. And yet those services are in demand because the people who want them are also working 25 hours a day for the companies that make those smartphones and drone deliver toilet paper and coordinate on-demand cars. So we're caught in this kind of terrible cycle, in a way. And so this is my sort of finger-wagging bit of the talk, is to really think about when we're creating these living services and how can we actually break that that cycle too and actually focus on the things that are, are really important. The ray of hope is uh, Generation K, and they're called uh, Generation K. Has, has anyone seen the Hunger Games here? Yes, see I see, see Generation K. They're just not in the room much, right? So Katniss, the the, uh, the lead heroine in the um, in the Hunger Games. Now I have not really watched the Hunger Games apart from on to sort of like fast forward on an aeroplane. Um, but they're the post millennials. They don't have a name yet. Um, so they're in their kind of their sort of teenage, early teenage, uh, or tweens at the moment, and it's interesting their view because things you might imagine. So it's only six percent of them trust big corporations to do the right thing, as opposed to sixty percent of adults. Right. So in terms of Designing living services and understanding that trust relationship, well, there's a massive amount of work to do. And it's just getting worse, right? So we really have to kind of work on that part. If we're working on public services, there's a challenge too. Right? Only one in ten trust governments to do the right thing, which is it's half the number of, of what, millennials. And millennials are really distrustful of government too, right? So that's, it's even worse. <clears throat> so there's a huge amount of trust uh, to be won there what 's quite interesting though is you know, the selfie generation is that they 're actually not that uh, selfish that they believe most of them believe that um, helping others in need is really important so there 's a whole kind of culture shift that 's going on um, and seventy percent of them cite inequality as one of the issues that worry them right? and that as much as, as much as terrorism so they 're an incredibly anxious generation um, and and yet there's also a kind of real opportunity there to shift the way we relate to people uh, with the services we create. So my final word really is, is a very, very famous quote, which is that those who can't remember the, uh, the past are condemned to repeat it. So when it comes to thinking about the kind of services that we're creating don't just kind of focus on with this myopic focus on the future and we're going to create all this technology and the world's going to be great and we're going to solve all these problems because we create a whole load more too. But when you're thinking about those kinds of living services, think of them in, in those human terms and how humans interrelate to each other, not just in terms of you know, how we interact with those things, but also in terms of what it actually means to be human. So that's it for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was really excellent. Um, We have time for questions for Andy. So who would like to ask something? I love it. So so I figure a lack of questions either means, oh, my God, what just happened there? Or he nailed it. So hopefully it was he nailed it. Definitely, he nailed it. <laughs> no questions about that. Um, Andy, I'm just interested in your last slide there about the Generation K and yeah. the lack of trust, particularly in governments, government services and big corporations. So w- what do we do about that? Like, that's, that is fundamentally changing, you know, the way that we need to be developing and delivering services. Um, who's doing this well? What can we do? That's an easy question. Um, <laughs> who's doing it well? I'm really struggling not to say Apple, actually, because I kind of find... But do you know Apple's fight with, um, you know, about uh, privacy and encryption at the moment is a, is a really important one for that very reason? Um, because it's, you're kind of like seeing those two worlds collide with each other. <clears throat> And uh, you know, of course, and they're renowned for trying to, for being very, very public about how much privacy is important. Um, that's not to say that I think that that's what's interesting about that kind of Generation K and the Millennials is that you've got <clears throat> a kind of contradiction. So it's not so much that they want total privacy because a lot of them are willing to give up privacy for. Um, you know, for, for other reasons. It's just about being transparent with that stuff. So um, sorry, my watch is buzzing to tell me I've, my talk is finished. Um, see? See what I mean? That's kind of annoying, isn't it? <coughs> um, the fundamental thing with trust is that it's, uh, it takes a long time to build and you really have to earn it and it's very easy to break it. And once you've broken it, it's very, very hard to kind of rebuild it again. So my, my guess is with that stuff, is you know, with the government and public services, that's, it's you know, so embedded in politics um, and the political scene at the moment. And you only really have to look at well, what's happened here, but also in the US and in the UK, where um, <clears throat> that trust has been sort of systematically dismantled. I think that there are things about being open and transparent are really important. I mean, in, in any relationship, you need to, to build in that openness and transparency. Um, and I think that as services become more and more complex, that openness and transparency becomes more and more essential because you, it, if you think of like uh, Facebook's privacy settings that are really complicated to set up, um, those kinds of things backfire not because, or maybe because, um, those companies are being devious but because that stuff's just really confusing. And so you have kind of one confusing service plus another confusing service plus another, and all of a sudden you really don't know where there are holes in your um, in your kind of trust and security and all those kinds of privacy. So I think we have a kind of duty of care to design services that are very, very explicit about that stuff. Um, and obviously there's things like about asking for permission, but there's almost like a... You need the kind of butler side of things to, to say, um, I'm not sure if I'd do that, sir. You know, um, that there's some things where it's almost ad- advice or, or your living services are actually kind of telling you where there are kind of possible problems in the background rather than the onus being on the, the user or customer to have to work all that out. Um, I, I can't actually think of... <coughs> I can't think of many examples of companies doing that really well, and I certainly can't think of many uh, public services that are doing that really well, um, because it's, it's so... The, the kind of jargon and language and, um, in those services is, is just terribly complicated and very ill-thought-through th- normally. So some of it's a content thing, you know, to get people to write that stuff really well and succinctly, and some of it's about unpacking layers and layers of policy... Um, to actually get back to, well, what is it that we're in- intending to do? That's a really... Com- I mean, it's a, a massive challenge. I don't have a quick answer for you, I'm afraid. I wish I did. I think that's why we're here, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah, is why we're here. Thanks, Andy. That was, uh, that was a terrific kind of talk. Um, the Downton Abbey world is very much a face-to-face world. Yes. And yet the world that you've described and which many of us live in is not a face-to-face world. It's kind of a remote world. And so are we going to see a return to -to face-to-face? Yeah, I mean that's one of the things I kept kind of thinking about. So I have a I sort of touched on it in the talk. I have a sort of I think humans are hardwired to anthropomorphise everything. right? We talk about our you know, stupid car wouldn't start this morning, our dumb computer has crashed, and so forth. And we talk about apps not in terms of, I find this makes me more productive and super efficient. We say, I love this, or I hate that. And um, so I think we... It's really important to understand that when we relate to any of that technology, we're relating to it as if it was a face-to-face thing. Um, So... I think there's one part of that is uh, thinking about, that's why I said act it out, to, to think about those things of what would you do as a person? And I think for a lot of services and public services and, and corporations, there's a thing of, you know, is that the kind of way you would treat a friend of yours in that kind of relationship? Or um, is that somehow become warped by the fact that we're a business or, or government service and you're just a kind of user? Um, so that's one part. The return to face-to-face um, yeah, I I don't know. We were talking about this last night. It was that there's that kind of, and it's been a bit of a sort of hipster trend towards kind of, um, we were in a sort of bar and restaurant where they were wearing the kind of aprons and they're kind of preparing cocktails very nicely. It was, all, it was brilliant service, actually. Um, and that trend towards making things well with your hand. So I think there's like a kind of counter push going on um, or a desire for that kind of face-to-face contact. And I think that um, the future is probably that really well mediated. So some of those services that have um, like kind of chat services or ways where you can connect with someone, and that's your point of contact, there's some really good um, support services where you just have one point of contact, and they keep following up with you, and it's always the same person, or at least it feels like it's always the same person. That stuff's going on quite a lot, I think, because you know a lot of large corporations have have noticed that once they outsourced that stuff, it absolutely kind of destroyed trust, um, all sorts of things that were support things that actually just ended up becoming much, much more expensive because people were just confused and frustrated. So there is a gravitation back to to having a kind of point of contact. And it's not face-to-face, though, always. It's it's often mediated. Thanks. Hi, Andy. Considering that there are... Many parts of the world where living services are um, are still very much part mm-hmm. of everyday life. Um, I'm just wondering whether you see um, a disruption coming um, in the same way as you know it came at the turn of the 20, 20th century. Turn of the 20th century. A disruption with... in, in which direction? So in terms of well, for instance, thinking of uh, driverless cars. Yeah. Driverless cars come you know come on board. We all get one. There are no more taxis. No more chauffeurs. No more Uber perhaps, mm, unless mm. Uber actually supplies the driverless cars. Um, in in Asia, for instance, um, you know, a lot of people make their livelihood, yeah. you know, driving people around, um, doing these sort of <coughs> living services, jobs. I'm just wondering what yeah, uh, what your feeling uh, is about well, that. Well, my feelings are really mixed about that, and that's why I had that slightly sort of downer at the end, which was, you know, as so I was talking about Mosley and, and uh, Matthew Crawford in that, in that uh, scene, because there's definitely that going on, you know, for, uh, or the taxi drivers, you know, uh, attacking Uber. And people don't do that because they think it's a laugh to smash up cars. They do that stuff because they're really scared. And um, so there is that disruption going on. Um, it's, you know, the, the flattening of privilege involves a fastening of privilege elsewhere as well, right? So luxury gets redefined. So uh, luxuries sort of ratchets up even more and you can, one of the things we sometimes talk about is this idea of a kind of platinum OS, you know, that you have your own operating system with cars, with bandwidth, all of those things of, you know, if you're wealthy enough then you get the, the self-driving cars in the fast lane and if you're poor you get the kind of slow ones and who that are free but they collect all your data. You know, there's that stuff going on. There's definitely that kind of disruption going on. Um, and it will change the landscape of people's jobs, definitely. Um, in the car example, I think it's really interesting to think: if everyone has self-driving cars that behave properly to the road rules, what's the point of owning uh, a Ferrari or a Porsche or a BMW versus, you know, Toyota Camry? Because they all, you, you know, you never get to kind of have the different driving experience. So for me, that shift from a car as a thing, as a product, to a car as a service is really fascinating. I'm, I don't think the car manufacturers are anywhere near thinking about that. Thanks, Andy. Um, you have a lot of undertones around ethics and morality, yeah. and which is awesome, which is really great. But how do we get organisations to actually understand that that's important? And I mean, we understand that as designers, long-term why it's important to the business, but when they're driven by financial goals, how do we help <coughs> them see that they need to be doing this stuff now? Well, it's up there with climate change in terms of not an easy thing to solve, right? Um, and uh, like with climate change, I think the, the answers to that aren't kind of one big solution. It's lots of kind of small sort of shavings across the, um, the whole system that make the difference. And um, I'm not totally convinced that we understand that as designers. I, I think we like to think we do, and I think sometimes we design things and don't think about that stuff so much. Um, for most organizations, you have to provide the business case for that. And it's the same as, you know, around two thousand and six there was the Stern report came out in the UK, um, which was the first time kind of climate change had been phrased in terms of the economy and loss of money and kind of like an insurance thing that if you don't do this, invest in this now, it's going to cost you trillions later on. And I think some of that is probably the way to make the business case for those things, for the ethics of those things. And the more, you know, like anyone, like any of that stuff, no one does anything until they have a disaster. So you have things like Target, you have things like um, the thing I've just forgotten, in the States where like millions of... um, really sensitive recruitment records and performance records from employers from a government service ended up out there in the world. So until one of those kind of terrible things happens, you need the sort of tsunami to happen for people to think, oh, actually, we should do something about this. So, you know, it's obviously better if we can try and get ahead of that and use some of those examples of why uh, it's important. And it goes back to the trust thing as well. Uh, Thanks for the presentation. You mentioned as one of your tips for avoiding a faux pas to act it out. But act it out for me is kind of a nod towards co-design but not going far enough. Is that an acknowledgement that co-design's hard so this is at least a pragmatic step in the right direction? No, um, I think I meant those in, in well I would think consider those in two different ways. I mean I think there's definitely co-design is an incredibly useful part of the process. Um especially when you're trying to kind of verify ideas and, and work, it, work those things out. What I really meant was actually acting out those kinds of um, interactions between what would be you and a, a digital thing. That um, a lot of things seem like they're a good idea. I, there was a couple of slides I didn't put on which is, um, and I talked about this last week, you see, I see a lot of, I know this is sort of digital in particular, but I see a lot of um, mock-ups of apps or demos of apps and you, know, you see the photos in the app store and it's someone holding a, a, a phone against a white background and that's not how people use, <laughs> use phones right they're not in some sort of weird matrix white room uh, they're always in context and so those acting out those things of does this feel appropriate at the right time you know the, the, the thing about living services is that they're, <clears throat> they're always kind of responding and reacting and they're kind of always present the, other, the sort of flip side of that is I don't know where the creepy line is and I don't think anyone does yet and I, my, my guess is that it's going to shift as well as we get used to some things and we get used to things and we decide no, that's kind of over, overstepping a boundary and that's not so um, acting those things out is a useful way of understanding what that feels like to be interacted, in, uh, interacted with in that way uh, rather than just thinking, well, this is a nice kind of I'm going to notify you here and I'm going to do this here. And, um, because that stuff's really subtle. It's very, very human stuff. And that's why acting it out immediately gives you that response of, oh, no, that, that doesn't feel right. Because um, you know, a lot of companies, it's as if they've just walked up to a stranger and said, hello, uh, what's your name? Where do you live? Give me your credit card details. Tell me where you're going. And, and it's like, oh, hang on. I don't can we just have a drink first? You know, I, it, it, you know, and so there's there's a kind of we do that all the time. We don't really think about it because that becomes the that's the, the standard way of doing things. And I think acting it out makes you go, oh, well, wow, oh, oh no, that, that that feels wrong. So um, that's what I was trying to say with that thing. We hope you liked this presentation from Service Design 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.